Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Zolman. He is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University. In addition, he is an associate fellow at the Center for Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh a visiting professor at the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy and an associate editor of the journal Philosophy of Science. With Paul Rayburn, he is the author of the Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. So today we're going to focus our conversation on game theory and some of its applications. So Dr. Zolman, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh yeah, thank you for inviting me. Okay, great. So, I mean, would it be fair to say that you apply game theory both to trying to understand uh, current social phenomena and also uh, phenomena related to evolution, like, for example, the evolution of certain uh, cognitive mechanisms and uh, other types of mechanisms, like, for example, learning ones and the Baldwin effect? and behavioral plasticity and things like that. So are you interested in both of those two types of things? Absolutely. I think one of the things that I like about game theory is its ability to connect together sort of these long, you know, long trains of evolution, like plasticity and cooperation in animal, uh, uh, in animals as well as humans, but also in very contemporary problems like the way scientists might organize their research or the way individuals might behave in traffic or or parenting dilemmas or these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, would you say that uh, game theory helps us explain both proximate and ultimate mechanisms of behavior or not? I think so, although I tend to like the more the game theory that focuses on the more longer term. So there's this kind of division in game theory between what's sometimes called traditional or rational choice game theory and evolutionary game theory. The rational choice game theory is supposed to be a theory of how people behave in an individual game that sort of may be brand new to them. Um, but sometimes the predictions of that theory, I think, are a little bit too strong. That is, they anticipate that people will be engaging in much more sophisticated reasoning than they actually do. So I tend to err on the side of the, of the more, you know, longer term um, uh, explanations for behavior. Although long term can be uh, relatively short term, like in, in the, a lifetime of an individual, say, as opposed to necessarily, you know, the entire evolutionary history. Um, but I tend to not, I, I tend to be more skeptical of game theory when um, it's trying to predict how somebody is going to behave in a game that they're only going to confront once um, and never again. Because there, it's a little bit harder to predict how somebody's reasoning might work, I think. And when you apply game theory to understand uh, how certain mechanisms evolved, uh, mm -hmm. let's say, like, for example, um, behavioral plasticity or certain learning mechanisms, I, I mean, is it the case that game theory allows for us to understand better what, are, what were the sorts of selective pressures that operated on animals or on certain beings for them to evolve those traits? Or is it the case that it helps us understand after animals have evolved mm. those same mechanisms, how they operate in a social context? 
Yeah, I think it does both of those things. I think that, um, in particular, I mean, game theory, like like almost like any part of the theory of evolution, is only as good as your understanding of the selective environment that that animals face. And so, um, if you describe the wrong game, so to speak, which is to say, get get the selective environment wrong, you're going to potentially explain a phenomena in the wrong way because you've gotten the history wrong. You'll also predict what they'll do in novel environments wrong. So I think that it's, it, but it does, but when you get the selective environment right, it does do both of those things that you described. That is, it provides us with an explanation for why animals behave the way that they do, and potentially, assuming that you know of the new selective environment also, it does get cor correct, it does make predictions about how animals will, will behave in new selective environments or in new uh, novel environments that at least are, um, uh, constrained in a certain respect by the the environments that they evolved in. So it, it, it can't be completely brand new in too many ways. But if it's a new environment in a way that the that that cues uh, something that the animal already some bit of of behavior or phenotypes or whatever that the animal has already, um, then then it can predict what will happen in those cases. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting because I think that there are certain evolutionary phenomena like, for example, the Baldwin effect that some people uh, over the last 100 years or something like that have criticized it as being somewhat Lamarckian. Yeah. B but in fact, it is now part of the what we call the modern synthesis in evolutionary yeah. biology and it helps us understand how even during the lifetime of individuals, by them interacting in a social context, mm -hmm. they might create new evolutionary pressures that then also influence genetic evolution, like, for example, even in phenomena like uh, gene culture coevolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really important, and I think one of the things that evolutionary game theory is very useful for is looking precisely at these interactive effects where um, what's called frequency-dependent selection. That is, when the presence of a certain trait in a population affects the the um, uh, fitness of that trait in that population, or alternatively, the fitness of a certain trait in population A might have a selective effect on the frequency of a different trait in population B. And that's really what evolutionary game theory was designed to account for. And, as, and it is very effective at doing that precisely because it allows us to understand how the dynamics of those kinds of feedback effects can happen, which is a, you know, it's not that traditional evolutionary analyses couldn't do it, but it just, it's a very simple and easy to, to analyze um, uh, mathematical methodology, which allows us to make predictions in those contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that evolutionary biologists talk about the most when they apply game theory to evolutionary biology has to do with things like, for example, uh, evolutionary stable strategies. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, yeah. I remember reading Richard Dawkins' The Selfish mm -hmm. Gene, and he talks about how, for example, Robert Axelrod and others applied yeah. Uh, game theory to understanding how certain types of behavior, like for example, tit for tat, evolved mm -hmm. and became evolutionarily stable strategies, as they call them. But yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember reading one article of yours, at least, where you somewhat criticized things mm -hmm. like Nash equilibria and mm -hmm. uh, ESS, evolutionarily stable strategies, applied. Uh, to um, 
the social dynamics in evolutionary <laughs> biology, I think, because uh, at a certain point they seem uh, more static than <laughs> they should be to understand how certain behaviors evolve. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely right. So this is joint work that I've done with uh, with my collaborator, Simon Hudiger, and we look at the methodology that, that game theorists traditionally use in biology in particular. And one of the criticisms that we raise is that many, not all, but many biologists use this ESS technique, even though it is essentially a static technique. That is, you're given a particular selective environment, say a game, um, and then you choose, you find those points that are stable under selection. That is, if the population was at that point, it wouldn't leave it. So, you know, everyone, say, um, plays a particular strategy or some fraction of the population plays a particular strategy, you would expect the population to remain there. The problem is, however, that this analysis doesn't say anything about how a population gets from wherever it started to that state. And so it can sometimes be misleading because there may be states which are not ESS, but which are evolutionarily significant, that is, which a population might go to, either because there are states that are not single points that are stable, but rather collections of points that are stable, or there might be situations where they're not stable at all, but you have a system that goes in a cycle or, does so or engages in chaotic behavior or any of a number of different things. And so what we argue is that the methodology, that biological methodology, really should expand to include more explicitly dynamic analyses of, uh, of evolutionary games, because that allows for a really richer understanding of what's, what's going on. And we have a couple particular examples where we really think that, the, that biologists have been misled by focusing on the static methodology. So could you give us maybe a couple of those examples? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the simplest examples are settings where um, you have a, a game that has one ESS, but also other evolutionarily significant states. And the example that we look at uh, and that we've analyzed in, in, in detail are examples of signaling games. That is, games that try and model communication between one creature and another. The most common example is something like communication between potential mates. You have, say, uh, 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 you know, a male perhaps that has that can vary in terms of quality and wants to signal that quality uh, to the female, um, but doesn't want to signal wants to signal that that he's of high quality when he's of high quality, but does not want to signal that he's of low quality when he is of low quality. And so there's a particular game, a famous one called the Sir Philip Sidney game, which represents this kind of interaction. Um, sorry, Sir Philip Sidney game is a is a is anyway. It's it's Sir Philip Sidney game. Uh, is an example of a uh, in, inside the family interaction, but it's it's related. Um, there's, this, there's this collection of games, signaling games, that represent this interaction, and that under certain settings uh, of the various uh, uh, fitness values, you end up with a game that has a single, unique, uh, evolutionarily stable strategy. But there are a lot of states which are not evolutionarily stable, but nonetheless, most populations will end up there. And so you have this kind of interesting contrast between the predictions of the evolutionarily stable state strategy for analyzing it, which is to find those stable states, and an explicitly dynamic methodology, which suggests that, in fact, the population should be very far away from that evolutionarily stable state. And we do, you know, there's a bunch of mathematics to try and demonstrate this claim, 
But we ultimately conclude that that's an example. Signaling games are an example where this kind of methodology is going to be misleading. It's going to make a collection of predictions that a richer analysis would contradict. Mm -hmm. Since you refer to signaling theories, maybe we could get a little bit more into that right away. So, I mean, when we talk about that in evolutionary biology, I guess that one of the most prominent uh, theories out there has to do with the handicap principle as proposed by Zahavi and others. Uh, but there are other theories of signaling and how honest and partially honest signaling, signaling might have evolved. And I mean, maybe, I don't know if you agree, but maybe Zavian's theory puts too much stress on the fact that uh, what, for example, a male of a particular species is signaling to the female yeah. has to be as honest as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, if if it can be faked, then <laughs> it wouldn't stand as much chance of having evolved mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, so could you tell us about that and maybe about alternative theories of signaling that might be better? Yeah. Absolutely. So that, you know, the classic example here is, is as you described, the, say, signaling between two potential mates. And the fundamental paradox is in these situations where there's an incentive to lie, the question is, why don't, um, why do creatures honestly signal? So why do, why do low quality males reveal that they're low quality, low quality females reveal that they're low quality? Why do weak prey reveal that they're weak to, to predators, et cetera, et cetera? And Zahavi proposed in a kind of more qualitative framework, not really in a game-theoretic framework. Um, Zahavi proposed this idea that it might be that these signals are honest because they impose some kind of cost. That is, um, you know, the peacock is this classic example, although it's not even uh, agreed that, that this is really what's going on with the peacock, but it's a good illustration. Peacock grows this giant tail. The idea is, well, the tail must come with a cost, or at least so Zahavi suggested. And so, as a result, um, it must be that only the high-quality males are willing to pay that cost, but that cost is sort of too high for the low-quality males. It's too dangerous, or it requires too many calories, or something like that. That hypothesis, um, that cost, is really at the center of explaining why it is that animals uh, signal honestly when they do, was initially didn't, was not was not popular, but then became very popular after a collection of game theoretic models due to Graffin, Maynard Smith, and a few others, um, really demonstrated the coherence, the mathematical coherence of this idea. And then it took off. It sort of, it sort of went from being an idea that nobody agreed with to being an idea that everyone agreed with without a lot of space in between. It's a very sort of interesting moment in the history of science. And it became the dominant explanation. So if you read most ecology textbooks today, um, this will be the story they tell you, right? This will be that there is, this is why honesty exists, because there's a cost. And one of the things that, that I've been arguing with a number of collaborators, including Simon Hudiger and also Carl Bergstrom, who's a biologist at the University of Washington, we've been arguing that, um, not that, not that the hobby is wrong in the sense that it's not that these explanations aren't possible but that it's not the only explanation. And so we're arguing for a larger plurality of explanations for, for signaling. And we're not the only ones. I don't mean to suggest that we are. There are other people as well that are involved in this. And this larger community is starting to argue that 
Um, this is one, but one of several possible explanations, and it's not without its problems. So it's not a sort of solution without, you know, that, that just completely solves the problem without reintroducing any more mysteries. And in particular, the thing I was just talking about with respect to this question about, about static versus dynamic methods in game theory is one of those things that shows that there actually are more mysteries in, in that explanation. So what we're kind of hoping to do is enrich the, the, the biological toolbox with a, a wider collection of potential explanations and then the hope is that then people who actually study the animals, either in the lab or in the field, can start to ask, well, is cost the correct explanation or is one of these other potential explanations the correct explanation for why this particular model species engages in honest communication? Mm -hmm. uh, and are there any other explanations that have uh, good support for them or, or not? Uh, yes and no. So um, there are a number of others that are theoretically well-grounded, um, but unfortunately the experimental and field communities really haven't, the news hasn't been spread. So it's still the case that most of the people who work with, you know, actual animals um, haven't begun testing alternative theories yet. And so one of the things that we're trying to do, well, you know, I'm a philosopher, Carl's a, a theoretical biologist, so none of us have the expertise to do experiments with real, with real animals, but we're hoping to try and enlist uh, those that do in order to perform experiments to start testing some of these alternative theories. The one thing I can say is that there is a large number of experiments that demonstrate that Zahavi's theory can't be right. So that is, there have been a lot of people that have been trying to prove Zahavi's theory by measuring the cost of the signal, by measuring you know various parameters, uh, and they show that in many cases the parameters can't possibly be fit within the Zahavian theoretical framework. So there's evidence that we need a different theory. So that's kind of negative evidence, right? It's negative. It's evidence against Zahavi, but it's not necessarily evidence for the alternatives. Now the alternatives do have theoretical grounding. That is, they've been proven. There are a number of them that have been pr been proven to be coherent theoretically. Um, so we know that they're possible in that sense, but they haven't been proven to be uh, correct empirically. That is, we haven't had a series of experiments that demonstrate that they correctly explain a particular species. Mm -hmm. And in terms of signaling theory, I mean, it's not only about uh, animals. A sort of sending signals or exhibiting some cues that other animals, like for example, uh, animals of the same species but of the opposite sex, are able to read and pick up as cues and signals to then decide what sort of relationship they should establish with that animal. But it also expands to what we call communication and potentially even to. Uh, what we humans have that is language. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the original study of signaling, in the, uh, using game theory in particular, was actually started in economics rather than biology. So there's a, a very, very famous uh, paper by Michael Spence that asked the question, why do people go to college and get a degree in a field that has nothing to do with where they're eventually going to work? Right. So suppose somebody goes to college and gets, a, say, a degree in German literature and then uh, ends up working as an insurance agent. So 
why get a degree in German literature if your plan was to work as an insurance agent? And what Spence suggested was that it might be that college is functioning like the peacock's tail. That is, college is uh, demonstrating that you are of high quality. You're intelligent, you're hardworking, you're something like that. And so it doesn't much matter what your degree is in if the point of college is principally to demonstrate those skills. You just choose something hard, you do it, you do it well, and then that shows to an employer that you're going to be, that you are a hard worker and you're an intelligent person and that you're dedicated, these sorts of things. So that was actually the, the origin of signaling, of using game theory to understand signaling, was to try and understand human behavior. But actually it's very, very broad. So there's a lot of poss there's a lots of things about human behavior and human language that are, um, that necessitate a kind of strategic analysis. So there are very, very basic questions. Why do we communicate at all? There's the, you know, which is a really fundamental question. But then there are also more sophisticated questions, like why do we use particular linguistic forms? Like why do we have distinctions between uh, directives and assertions where, you know, so I can direct you to do something, like say, go get the water, or I can assert something, uh, the water is over there. Why do we make those distinctions? But also questions in what's sometimes called pragmatics. So questions like, why do I, say in English, um, ask you to pass the salt at the dinner table by saying, can you pass the salt? Which literally just means, are you able to pass the salt? But we all understand it to mean, please pass the salt. You know? And so the, these questions, there's a lot of people that are starting to employ game theory in linguistics and philosophy of language in an attempt to understand these very human uh, uh, centered uh, features of our language that really, I mean, especially the pragmatic stuff, it's not clear that there are any analogs in the animal community, although you never know, there might be. Mm -hmm. And isn't it the case that one of the most difficult aspects of how humans communicate and how we use language specifically uh, to understand is that we tend to be much more honest with each <laughs> other than we would expect from an evolutionary perspective. Because yeah. I mean, if I have uh, with me a certain information that I can use in my favor, I mean, yeah. why should I uh, share it with others? I mean, I would be in advantage in relation to that yeah. if I didn't do it, right? This is, this is a really interesting mystery because humans are very bad liars. I mean, this is just a sort of fundamental fact about us. I mean, you know, of course, everyone can think of examples of people who are good liars, but actually the, the reason that we all can think of them is because they're very rare. We're actually really bad at lying to one another. And there's this question of why aren't we better at lying to one another, given that, as you say, there are lots of circumstances where it would be to our individual selfish uh, biological interests to be better liars. Why haven't we evolved strategies or evolved the ability to be a better liar? And these are, these are really hard questions. And the thing that makes it tricky is it's very hard to know how often we needed to lie from a biological perspective. You know, this is one of the things that's really hard about studying human social evolution in particular is that's the kind of thing that doesn't get preserved in the fossil record. Language doesn't get fossilized, and so we don't know what was our language like 100,000 years ago. Um, and so we don't have any sense for how our language evolved, what context it evolved in, what it was evolved for, and for instance, why it is that we, we happen to be very bad liars. Perhaps it just didn't come up 
you know, most of the times when we use language in our evolutionary history, we didn't need to deceive one another. That's a possibility. It's also possible that there was selective pressure against lying because liars were being punished or liars were being excluded from society or something like that. There's also, you know, there's also the possibility that it's just evolutionarily very hard to make good liars, you know, and so it's, 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 it's really unclear what the potential explanation is, but I think it's a really very interesting question because it's sort of, I mean, when you start thinking about it from a biological standpoint, just like you said, it's really remarkable that we're not better at it. And there has certainly been during our evolutionary history sort of an arms race, right? Because, I mean, if there were, for example, a certain percentage of people that were liars or cheaters or freeloaders, I mean, other people would have been under selective pressure to be able to read the cues or the signals that those cheaters sent for them to be able to catch them and to punish them and to exclude them from the group and, and things like that. Or otherwise, I mean, eventually we would reach a point where everyone would be a cheater and mm. then, I mean, maybe human society and because it was important for us to live in groups would mm -hmm. eventually collapse. That's a cer certainly a possible uh, a possible explanation. So one possibility that you know we're not we're, we're actually are very good at liars, but we're also we're, we are very good at lying, but we're also very good at detecting it precisely for the kind of evolutionary arms race that you have in mind. There's a, a, a sort of broader question in, in in that that you're touching on here, which is this question of whether or not what are called social dilemmas, that is situations of public goods where we have to worry about cheaters, really represent the fundamental problem of human evolution. A lot of people think it does, that the idea is to work in groups, we have to worry about people cheating, we have to worry about people taking more than they deserve, we have to worry about people you know, engaging in. And I think that that's, that's certainly a possibility. There are some people, though, that think that um, that's really not a fundamental problem of human soci social life, and that really our evolutionary environment was more one where uh, it was a problem of coordination. That is, once we all figured out how to work together, we all wanted to work together. The problem was just figuring out how to coordinate. And so language was mostly about solving those kinds of problems. And that, I'd, I'd say, minority view about the history of, of human evolution makes lying seem less of a central problem. Because then the idea is, well, if we all want to coordinate, we have no reason to lie to one another. And again, just like with language, this is such a hard problem to study because we don't know that much about the so, the social environment of our early ancestors. Were they mostly cooperatively hunting? Were they mostly living for in societies for mutual defense? Were they mostly living in societies for uh, mating purposes? We can make guesses based on very limited evidence, but it's very hard to know, in a certain sense, what was the fundamental game that our ancestors were playing. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of debate, on, and unfortunately it's one of these things where we may never really get the evidence we need to make a definitive decision about, a definitive scientific judgment about this, because it's the kind of information that may have just gotten completely lost to history. Yeah, as you were referring to before, there are things that don't fossilize, like, for example, yeah. behavior and people's minds and things like yeah, that. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and we just so there's just our information is so much more limited about our behavioral evolution than about our physical evolution because we can look at bones, but but all we have to look at about social evolution are 
you know, well, we see, you know, structures being built, or we see bones being distributed in a particular way, or as these sorts of things, which does tell us something, but it's it's much more limited, I think, than 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 things about the structure of our bodies, say. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can make limited inferences from archaeological remains or even uh, bodily remains or something like that, but it's always somewhat speculative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so just taking a step back, because we're already focusing on humans, let me just ask you a broader question about the evolution of behavioral plasticity. Yeah, sure. uh, I I mean, I guess that this is very important, even more so for humans, because as far as we know, I guess we are probably the most behaviorally plastic species Mm. that we know about. I mean, Mm. other species also are behaviorally plastic to to a more or lesser degree, but they seem to have more instincts or what Mm. biologists call fixed action Mm. patterns. And I mean, it makes sense to have them, but maybe in other contexts, like for example, if people, I'm talking about people because I'm referring to humans now, Uh, uh, since we've been moving a lot throughout the globe and we've been exposed to different environmental conditions, Mm. then it would make sense to be able to have a more plastic or flexible behavior. Yeah. Now, that seems very right. I mean, there is this there is this question, which is it seems intuitive and seems pretty reasonable to assume that plasticity, the ability to adapt one's behavior to, to the environment, might come with a cost. I mean, in the case of humans, we have these giant brains um, that really do. I mean, they impose enormous costs. They take a lot of energy. They're very hard. They make birth very difficult on the mother. Um, so they create all sorts of potential problems. So it must be that there was some strong evolutionary benefit to maintaining that kind of plasticity. And so then the question that comes up, both for humans and for other animals, but especially for humans, why? Why is it that since there's an obvious cost of plasticity, why don't we evolve just a more rudimentary system of just encoding things? And also, on the other side, there are some people, and this is, I mean, I'm just going to report what other people say rather than necessarily endorse it, but there are some people who think that There are some ways in which we're not plastic, which is kind of remarkable. So a lot of people who study language think that some aspects of our language are actually encoded in our brain in some respects, whether that's universal grammar or something else. But the idea that some features of language are, in a certain sense, hard-coded and are not behaviorally plastic. That is the kind of thing that we couldn't invent a language that, say, was completely different than than human languages. And so that is a question of why that? Why, you know, if... We're obviously plastic enough that we speak different languages, but we're not so plastic, these people say, that we could speak any arbitrary language. You know, why is it that we have plasticity where we do and where we don't? You've already touched on what is really the central point, is that when the environment is changing, it can't change too fast and it can't change too slow. But when the environment is changing at kind of just the right rate, plasticity will be beneficial. Because if the environment changes so fast that you can't even adapt to it, right? If it's, you know, if, if it, in the morning it's sunny, but then it immediately becomes freezing cold and then rain and then, you know, throughout the day, I can't take an umbrella or a coat. I can't even adapt. But if, if the environment never changes, if the temperature was always the same year round, then I wouldn't need to adapt either. I could just 
never take a coat, never take an umbrella. So it's sort of, you know, that middle ground. Sometimes it rains, sometimes it doesn't, that creates the selective environment for plasticity. Now, the question that that is a tricky one here is, you know, what kinds of environmental changes count? I've been using the weather as an example because that's a really classic one, and that's one that we have pretty good reason to think humans were subjected to. Like you said, not only did we move around the globe, which meant that we were exposed to many different environmental conditions, but we also have evolved through some very radical changes in the Earth's temperature, ice ages, you know, various epochs that had very different uh, uh, environmental conditions. And so as a result, there's some reason to think that just the weather might have been sufficient to keep us plastic, at least in some respects. Other people have postulated other types of variation, in particular social variation. So there are a number of people that think part of our plasticity may be due to the fact that we were being constantly confronted with novel social situations. We're interacting with new people or the same people, but in a very different, different sort of social interaction. We go from cooperative hunting to uh, cooperatively building structures or perhaps to engaging in, in fights or communication or something like that. And so perhaps it's just enough that, that, that the social situation is changing. That might be enough to benefit plasticity. So the environment, the weather, say, perhaps, stays constant, but our social world is constantly changing. And this is the thing that I, with another collaborator of mine, Rory Smead, investigated, whether if if the social environment was sufficient to, to select for plasticity. And our argument is ultimately the answer is no, that it's the social environment is not only by itself sufficient to select for plasticity. You need some change in the external environment outside of interacting with other humans in order to sustain plasticity. So we, we argued for this via a collection of mathematical models where we, where we tried to show that if the external environment remains completely fixed, then eventually plasticity will be selected against, assuming that plasticity comes with some kind of cost, which is, I think, a, a pretty widely held assumption. Um, and so our argument was that really, it really has to be at least some level of environment. Now, if the environment's changing, that can affect the social setting, and then it, those two can 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 together lead to plasticity, and that's fine. We don't have any problem with that. But it's, our argument is it can't be the social interaction alone that's driving it. Mm -hmm. The social interaction alone, right? Because, I mean, as you were talking, two things came to my mind. One of them was that uh, what you were talking about seemed very similar to proposals, like, for example, the one by Robert Boyd and Peter Richardson that <laughs> say that during the Pleistocene, because there was a lot of climate change or at least mm. environmental fluctuations that that was one of the pressures that even led us to develop or to evolve culture or at least the mm. cognitive dispositions yeah. that allow for us to have culture or cumulative culture that other yeah. animals do uh, lack uh, and on the other hand as you were referring to human sociality I remembered, for example, the work by Robin Dunbar, mm -hmm. where he talks about the um, the social brain, basically, and mm -hmm. how certain parts of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex, supposedly uh, enlarged during our evolutionary history because we had to deal 
with uh, more and more complex social environments. But I, I, I guess that what you're talking about goes more in line with Robert Boyd and Peter Richardson's hypothesis. That's right. That's right. And it's not, um, it definitely, we, we would definitely agree with Boyd and Richardson. And it's not necessarily that we're disagreeing with Dunbar. The question would be, what drives that ever increasing complexity? If that ever increasing complexity of human culture is in response to a changing external environment, like, like climate change, then we would be fine with also Dunbar. But if what Dunbar is saying is it's only, you know, the external environment remains fixed, and it's only the increase in complexity of the human social environment. Our models would at least suggest that, that he owes us a little bit more explanation for where that's coming from. Because you would expect, if the social environment was stable, eventually uh, plasticity would be reduced. It might be initially increased, but then later reduced. I mean, this is, in general, this is the, the Baldwin effect phenomena, which is that in a stable environment, you might expect an initial increase in plasticity, but in the long run, an eventual elimination of it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and since we are referring to Robin Dunbar and the social brain hypothesis, let's talk now a little bit about social norms and mm -hmm. how game theory allows for us to better understand that aspect of human society. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I mean, I guess that there are two things here. First of all, I mean, we have to have in place a given set of cognitive mechanisms that we have evolved to be able to even process social <laughs> information, right? And so we have to know about those mechanisms. But on the other hand, when it comes to more, for example, contemporary stuff, like, for example, why are there certain specific religions, for example, and why they have that specific content. I guess that ma many of it, if not all, probably not all, because we have to look back at evolutionary psychology to understand its basis, but many of it, I guess, comes from emergent uh, phenomena that de derive from people establishing different uh, social dynamics. Mm -hmm. That's certainly right. I mean, one of the things that uh, is interesting about, say, looking at different cultures is that oftentimes social norms um, evolve to complement one another in really interesting and beneficial ways. So, you know, it might be that two different cultures or two different religions or something like that ultimately achieve the same end, but by, say, a very different collection of potential norms. That is, you know, you might have a norm of mutual aid, you might have a norm of mutual non-interference or something like that, which sound very different, but may ultimately achieve the same end of preventing people from uh, uh, harming one another, something like that. And so, um, one of the things that's interesting is, and this is gets to the thing that I mentioned earlier about how a lot of people, or some people at least, think that uh, the fundamental problem of human culture was one of coordination. Social norms are one method that we can achieve that kind of coordination. That is, the social norms tell us how to behave in a particular uh, social interaction in order to help just, you know, smooth out uh, what could be otherwise difficult social settings. So instead of having to decide every time I uh, run into a person how I'm supposed to greet them, you know, and say, oh, how do I convey to them that I'm interested in meeting them, but also not, you know, not a danger or whatever, 
um, we have a series of social norms which create a series of rules for us to engage in that kind of interaction. And so that's, you know, that, that creates the, fun, the fundamental, uh, that solves the fundamental problem of coordination. Other people think that social norms, like, uh, serve a more, um, what's the right word, a more aggressive role in, in helping to, to, to help uh, cooperation. So, for instance, Christina Bicchieri, um oftentimes argues that social norms are actually creating incentives for us to do things that we might not ordinarily do. And that's what she thinks real social norms are doing, not just solving coordination problems, but actually creating positive incentives for us to not be selfish or for us to not do something that's, that's, um, that's in our own self-interest. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I mean, let me just ask you this, because when we talk about uh, human sociality, I guess that there are two complicated aspects here, because on the one hand, we have individuals, and on the other hand, we have collectives, but collectives are also composed of individuals, right? So, what I'm trying to say here is that it is a bit complicated to understand when it is people through their interactions that create a sort of shared mm. or emergent mm. properties I see that yeah. get distributed yeah. through, throughout the different individuals, or if it is individuals with their, with their own brains and yeah. own cognitive mechanisms that give rise to what happens in society, or I mean, to what extent there's an interplay there. Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a very tricky issue. There's, there's an idea in biology which is very controversial, sometimes called uh, group selection, sometimes called multi-level selection theory, which is this idea that collectives like the ant colony can function like uh, a biological individual. So the colony itself, you can think of as a single individual that reproduces and that etc. In biology, there's all sorts of concerns about about these kinds of models. One thing that's interesting is um, it may be that these models, while biologically suspect, may be socially less suspect. And this is something I haven't worked on myself, but I know Boyd and Richardson that you mentioned already have, have worked on it, as well as a number of others. This idea that you might be able to sort of resuscitate this, this, this biological idea, but instead thinking of reproduction in terms of, of social reproduction. So uh, if a culture is particularly influential, it might be that that culture is imitated, right? So you know, you might you know, you you might see that people look to particularly successful cultures to imitate their cultural practices, both for good and for bad. You can see, like for instance, English being spread around the uh, around the globe as right now a kind of uh, uh, lingua franca, which is a funny phrase to use when we're talking about English. Um, uh, you know, at that being a kind of social contagion or social reproduction of something that is a result of no one individual. It's not as though there was a particularly successful English speaker, but rather an, uh, the success of an entire group of individuals um, or a certain level of success, I guess. Um, and so, you know, this is definitely a phenomena where this possibility that you might have collectives like cult, like a cultural group or a country or something like that behaving like an individual and reproducing and, and having its ideas transmitted as a group is certainly very plausible. So it makes sense, right? You see a group of individuals who's successful, you might imitate their behaviors um, in an attempt to be successful like them without necessarily even knowing 
that you're doing it or why you're doing it, but it's just a kind of very natural human reaction. Those people are successful, I'm gonna do what they're gonna do, or what they do. Yes, uh, when I refer to individuals, I guess that even though I didn't mention it directly, I was also alluding to individual differences mm -hmm. and, uh, and the, the role that they play. So, for example, I've interviewed people that do work on the effects that parasite stress have mm -hmm on mm -hmm. certain cultures or certain <laughs> societies and for example they find correlations between parasite stress load uh, and certain personality traits like for mm -hmm. example being less extroverted mm -hmm. being more politically conservative mm -hmm. uh, being more being less sexually promiscuous and things <laughs> like that uh, and i mean those people that study those phenomena in that way, uh, they seem to imply that people were exposed to a particular selective pressure. In that case, they were exposed to different levels of parasites. And then the ones that had these kinds of behaviors that were more conservative, let's call them, uh, were more uh, evolutionarily successful. And so over time, the distribution of those traits, uh, I mean, they increased, right, in terms of their distribution yeah. in those given societies. So, I mean, I was just wondering, because uh, sometimes when people approach uh, social uh, interaction, social dynamics from a game theoretical perspective, uh, maybe they are trying to understand things more in terms of uh, in the present moment, how people interact with one another and the sort of, the sort of effects that that has on their behavior and how they organize their society and not really about these types of phenomena, like, for example, parasite stress and yeah. more and, and more evolutionary approaches. Let's yeah, I mean, I, I, I am personally somewhat skeptical of um, uh, the, the methods that in that assume that this is that these kinds of things are the result of biological evolution, precisely because um, biological evolution is slow. Um, and uh, we, you know, just because a particular society has high parasite load now doesn't mean they've had it for, you know, tens of thousands of years or something like that. And so, and also the other thing that that's really we know a lot about human society is we've actually there's an for the for our history has been an enormous amount of uh, migration. And so there's been lots of gene flow in and out. There are very few cultures that really are isolated, even which is kind of remarkable given how hard travel was. But nonetheless, there it was still lots of gene flow. But that doesn't mean that parasite load can't be relevant to those things, because I think one of the things that evolutionary game theory has shown is that the very same mathematics that one might use to describe biological evolution also applies to cultural evolution. That is evolution via imitation or evolution via trial and error learning. And so it might well be that people discovered, not on a biological sense, but rather a more intellectual sense, that hey, those people who are more sexually promiscuous um, seem to be sick more often, so I should be less sexually promiscuous in order to be less sick. That's not a biological thing, that's a learning mechanism. But nonetheless, the same reasoning applies. And so uh, it's really interesting because, it's, it, the, because the same mathematics, the same underlying kind of reasoning can apply in both cases. That's both a powerful fact about the tool that we can kind of 
offer an explanation that works in a biological setting and also a social setting, but it also runs the risk that one can, uh, uh, without quite realizing it, slide from one to the other. And so, you know, you always have to be careful about deciding whether something is biological or cultural. Um, and I think that, but I do think that one of the things that is really powerful, especially about the cultural evolution component, is exactly the thing that you were saying. It can help us to explain individual differences based on environment where we know for sure that those differences can't possibly be biological. Like, you know, you look at, say, you know, the difference in somebody, you know, somebody of European descent who lives in the American South from somebody of European descent who lives in the, Amer in the American North. We've been here a few hundred years. There's no biological evolutionarily dif differences between those people, right? Um, uh, but nonetheless, there are cultural differences, and those cultural differences might have something to do with the environment that those cultures evolved in. And so one thing that game theory can do is it can help to model that cultural evolutionary phenomena just like it can model biological yeah, you refer to, for example, mobility, that is people moving from yeah. one group to the other. Uh, and I was just wondering, this just came to my mind now, that with the increased or facilitated mobility that we have nowadays, that is it's much easier nowadays for, for people to move from one place to the other, mm -hmm. one country to the other and live there. I mean, if to some extent at least it couldn't be the case that people would be sort of creating communities of yeah. uh, people that are more similar among themselves even without it being uh, done at a conscious level because I mean maybe someone that prefers certain types of people can move to yeah. a city where mm -hmm. there's more of that kind of people or to a village or whatever and even to another country so i mean over time it could even occur a sort, a sort of a, a, a sortative social I, I mean there's that thing about the sortative mating right the yeah. same yeah. thing but applied at the social level or something. I, I Absolutely, and, and social media makes that even more possible because even without physically moving, I can choose to create a social environment which more matches the social environment that I would like. So whereas I might be the only person in my city that has, say, a particular interest in a bit of culture, I can find other people online to interact with. And I think that, you know, this is one of those things. I mean, it's, I'm just talking a little outside my expertise because I'm not a sociologist. I don't really... but. It's, I think it's very complicated to, to evaluate how good or bad this can be because we can easily find examples of this being really terrible of people, you know, who um, have really bad uh, preferences finding one another and engaging in all sorts of detrimental interactions online. But it also has really positive things because people with um, unique disabilities where they don't know anyone else that has the same disability that they can, can go online and find others with the same disability and uh, feel like they're not alone, you know, learn adaption strategies, learn for treatments or, or these sorts of things, you know, which, which can also be really beneficial. And so it's one of these, you know, um, sociologists call it homophily, but biologists call it a, a, you know, assortative mating or assortative interaction. You know, these are, these are things which, which have both good sides and bad sides. And so I think it's really hard for us to predict whether this is going to be ultimately good or bad. It certainly is going to completely reconfigure the way that social evolution works, precisely because certain behaviors that might have been strongly selected against um, in uh, an environment where movement was very difficult 
might now no longer be selected against because I can just say, well, I'm not going to interact with the people that live next door to me that much. I'll spend my time on the computer interacting with, with people halfway around the world, but who won't put that selective pressure on me to change something. And that can be for good and that can be for bad. You know, and I think that it's, it's I'm, I'm always skeptical of the people who say either this is obviously going to be great or obviously going to be terrible because it just strikes me as it's so hard to predict um, because it really is going to benefit both, you know, good things and bad things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, there are lots of elements here and it's very hard for people to predict what's yeah. going to happen and particularly to say if it's going to be good or bad. I mean, it could even be the case that over time people create more and more uniform or, or, or homogeneous societies because mm -hmm. they start associating more and more with people that are like them. But yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, even that, can we be sure that it's bad? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's so hard to predict because, you know, there are, there are stories that one can tell that, that make it sound terrible, and there are stories that one can tell that make it sound great, and I, I just, I, I don't know enough, but I'm skeptical that anyone knows enough to really make a clear prediction. It's mostly just guesswork, and, and I think that it's important to think through these stories so that we can try and, you know, see if it's headed in the bad direction and correct for it. But to say definitively that Twitter is going to make the world better or Twitter is going to make the world worse, uh, that seems to me like guesswork, mostly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so let me just ask you one last question or explore one last topic. Because, I mean, the way that people uh, structure or organize their societies and the ways they interact also influence the ways they think or how mm -hmm. they or, or how their thinking works so mm -hmm. uh, i mean there's the, this interesting concept of epistemic communities mm -hmm. could mm -hmm. you explain it yeah absolutely so one of the areas that i've been getting really excited about recently has been the application of these tools to what i'm calling epistemic communities the the, the canonical the sort of most obvious example of an epistemic community is scientists you have a group of people in a scientific field, say, um, you know, biology or something smaller, you know, subfield or something, who are engaging in a collaborative project in order to try and learn about the world. And I don't mean just collaboration in the sense of like writing a paper together, but relying on one another. So I read other people's papers, I take some of that on board without engaging in the experiment myself, I trust they've done it correctly, and then I try and develop from that. And so that's a kind of you know, community of individuals that's engaging in an epistemic project. One of the things that's interesting is, of course, you know, this is a type of cooperation. I have to assume that others aren't lying to me. I have to assume that others are, if not lying, they're, not, they're also not engaging in some kind of systematic deception or leaving things out or these sorts of things. I also have to assume that they're competent, that they're at least have broadly the same goals I do and that and all of that. And so one of the questions that's really interesting here is science has a bunch of social norms, some that are just the social norms of the society that they're in more broadly, like don't lie to one another, but also some that are very, very specific to science, like norms about when you publish, how much you publish, what you say, when you do publish, etc. And so these questions about how did these norms come about and also what are their effects? So are there are those social norms good or bad for science? So you know, one thing that's changed about science with the massive professionalization of science that's happened in the latter part of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, has been a shift from this idea that scientists are um, amateurs, effectively, just you know, just sort of satisfying their own curiosity, 
Two, these are people who are professionals, who have financial incentives, social incentives, etc. And what changes that change in motivation might have on uh, the development of science as a whole. And along with two uh, now former graduate students of mine, uh, Liam Bright and Renko Hasen, we sort of embarked on this project to try and understand in particular what this change in motivation and the, and the, and the corresponding social norms of science might, what effect that might have on scientific progress and you know the things that we want out of science, that is, that it generates truth. Mm -hmm. So would that allow us also to better understand how to better tackle issues in science, like, for example, mm -hmm. uh, certain biases that people might have even in certain specific disciplines because yeah. they, they might be, for example, uh, politically motivated or yeah. something so like that? I, that's that's definitely something I haven't personally worked on that. Although people using techniques that I developed uh, have started to ask, in particular, that question about um, biases in science. So, uh, Kaylin O'Connor, um, Justin Bruner, and uh, Bennett Holman are three people who have all worked on this question of how do you? Oh, and Jim Witherall. Sorry, I should, shouldn't have left him out. Um, are all have worked on this question about how is it that. Um, either political bias or, and they've also looked at this question of industry bias, so the idea of industry-funded science, how that might affect science, scientific progress, that is how different strategies that industry might be using to try and affect science, and then also, correspondingly, how is it that we can try and design science to be more robust to that kind of effect, because we're never going to probably, we're never going to get political bias or industry bias out of science entirely. So the question is, how can we design a system that's more robust to their influence than what we have now? And their work is really, really exciting. I think it's really great work. Um, I haven't done much of it yet, although I'm, I'm writing a book where there's going to be a chapter about it. So I anticipate soon <laughs> to, be, to be doing this work. But, uh, but I, really have, uh, I really have been uh, uh, an excited consumer of what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I guess that's interesting because the social sciences very easily get bashed by the by people from the so-called hard sciences. Yeah. But in fact, at the end of the day, it's important for us to understand the social dynamics and how they operate that are going around in the scientific community if we are to produce better and better science over time. Absolutely, and I think that you know this is one of those funny things that sort of you know hard scientists imagine that, or you know people in physics and math in particular imagine that oh yeah we don't we're not subject to these influences in part because I mean and to a certain extent they may not be because you know there's less industry influence but of course they're human beings just like anybody else and it's not hard to find cases of uh, all sorts of of irrational biases. But also there's a really interesting phenomena that irrational biases sometimes might be really good. There's an interesting article by Miriam Solomon looking at um, the case of, tech, of uh, movement of tectonic plates, or, or, or um, uh, that's actually not even quite historically accurate because they didn't know about tectonic plates yet, but um, the question about whether the continents were moving. Um, and it really, she argues that actually um, this is a case where uh, the rational reaction to that to that to that theory when it was first proposed was to discard it. It was it was inconsistent with everything we knew about how the Earth worked. But nonetheless, some people, um, because they had particular biases, held on to the theory even though they probably shouldn't have. 
And then ultimately they won out. Ultimately they were right. And so uh, Solomon argues that that um, using not using the quantitative framework that I'm using, but a sort of more historical or qualitative framework, um, she argues that this is a case where um, in a certain sense, what we might see as irrational biases might actually serve a good social purpose. That is, we might be glad that we have biases in science. And so it's a, it's a complicated problem because there are certain biases that we definitely want to get rid of. We don't want the industry to force science in a particular direction, proving that smoking is not harmful or something like that. But on the other hand, some things that we might think of as initially irrational, like holding on to a theory just because it's your theory, even though it's been disputed, being conclusively proven to be false, might actually serve this broader epistemic goal of making sure that we don't give up on theories too quickly. And Solomon's example of uh, of of the movement of the continents is a really a really good one. And it could be the case that it might also help us create better checks and balances mm -hmm. in science because we have things like, for example, how people formulate hypotheses and yep. peer review and yep. replicability and all of the statistic ways or, or statistical ways of proving that the data is correct or not or if yeah. it has certain flaws. But even so, we might also have to take into account certain aspects of our sociality. That's right, absolutely. And and there's this question of, you know, it, it, it may be, and this is sort of almost, it almost sounds like a paradox, although it's not, it may be that our community is made more rational by the presence of irrational individuals. That is, you know, it may be that the sort of global emergent phenomena of the rationality of science itself may depend on the fact that individual scientists are not motivated by the truth or occasionally biased or uh, certain things, but they need to be arranged in, in the right way. Obviously, we don't want an entire community of scientists that's biased uh, towards a particular political outcome uh, without good reason, because then certain types of research may never get done. And there's good, re you know, there's good evidence about that, too. Like when science was exclusively done by men, they would be biased against certain topics of research or certain scientific conclusions. And that was actually bad for science, and that science was improved by the introduction of uh, women who then would uh, investigate other topics or take different perspectives. And I think that's also pretty conclusive. And so this idea of it may not be about individuals being biased or not, but making sure that you have a community that is diverse in the right ways so that their biases in a certain sense not cancel each other out, but balance each other out in a certain respect. And exactly like you said, peer review is a great example of that. It's, it's fine if you're biased in one way, so long as the peer reviewer is potentially biased in the other way, in a way that we can sort of, you know, ne negotiate between the two of us to find a, a you know, a middle ground that's, that's, that is scientifically good, even if each of us has our individual biases. Okay, great. So, Dr. Zolman, before we go, would you like to tell people what are some of the best places on the internet for them to get in touch with your work? Oh, well, that's a, that's a tricky one. So, I mean, I have my website, kevinzolman.com, um, which has all my papers and some descriptions of some of my work. It also has um, uh, links to things that I've written specifically for popular audiences, like that book, um, and interviews like this one that I've done. So, that, that would be one great place to start. Um, reading academic papers can be daunting sometimes. <laughs> I'm writing a book right now. Uh, it's far from finished, so it'll be a couple years before it comes out. But uh, but there, there, that is intended to be a little bit more accessible, at least to a broader academic audience, that gives a kind of overview of one aspect of my research. 
Um, but there's also, you know, there are lots of things that people can do to sort of follow updates on my research. I'm on Twitter, Kevin Zolman, um, and that's a great way to sort of keep abreast of what I'm doing and what dumb jokes I'm telling on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's any particular questions that people have, they should always feel welcome to write me an email, and I'm happy to point them to what, what resources I know are out there uh, specifically about, uh, about this. If they're interested in learning more about game theory, there's some really nice tools out there. Um, Nikki Case has done a lot of interactive um, games that you can play online that illustrate uh, uh, social evolution or different types of games. So if you just search for Nikki Case game theory, I think you'll be able to find those. I think those are really great. They're fun, they're really well designed, but they also are based in, in good theory too. So that would be another thing if people were interested in the area. Okay, great. So I will leave all of that in the description box of the interview so that people can go and check all of those materials out. I think they're really interesting. So Dr. Zolman, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a real pleasure to talk ah, to you. Great. And maybe when your upcoming book is out, we could talk again. Oh, that'd be great. I love it. Thanks very much for having me on. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and subscribe to the channel. You can also support me on PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.